Hello, and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 10.2, Slave Revolt of the Classical Period. Hello and welcome back to Musings on History. This is the second episode in the History of Resistance series and today I'll be talking about slavery and slave revolt in the classical period. Chapter 1, The Sea Peoples as a Peasant Uprising? In the late Bronze Age world of the Eastern Mediterranean, a rich linkage of Aegean, Egyptian, Syrio-Palestinian, and Hittite civilizations An infamous event occurred around 3,200 years ago that has mystified historians since the event's retrieval began in the late 19th century AD. Iconic Egyptian bas reliefs and graphic hieroglyphic and cuneiform texts attribute the proximate cause of the collapse to the invasions of the Sea Peoples in the Nile Delta, the southern Anatolian coast, and down into the heartlands of Syria and Palestine. During these invasions, armies clashed, famine-ravaged cities were abandoned, and countrysides were depopulated. Paleoclimate data from Cyprus, alongside a radiocarbon-based chronology integrating both archaeological and paleoclimate proxies, have revealed the effects of an abrupt famine-driven change, abrupt climate change-driven famine, sorry, and causal linkage with the Sea People invasions in Cyprus and Syria. The statistical analysis of proximate and ultimate features of the sequential collapse reveals the relationships of climate-driven famine, seaborne invasion, region-wide warfare, and politico-economic collapse, in whose wake new societies and new ideologies were created. Recent studies have suggested that the Sea People raids were the final step in a long and complex spiral of decline in the Eastern Mediterranean world, and that this unstable period was at least partly related to environmental causes operating over sizable areas. A climate shift centered on the 13th to 19th centuries BC could not be con- uh, without consequences on Eastern Mediterranean and West Asian environments where dry farming, agroproduction, pastoral nomadism, and fishing were the primary and secondary subsistence systems. Reduced precipitation probably affected the outlying nomad habitats and led rain-fed cereal agriculturalists to habitat tracking when agro-innovations were not available. According to this theory, the enigmatic Sea Peoples were not merely a bunch of pirates in pursuit of the riches of the Near East, but rather they constituted a set of ethnic entities fleeing inhospitable regions to conquer new lands already undermined by the widespread drought. By combining data from coastal Cyprus and coastal Syria, one study shows that the late Bronze Age crisis coincided with the onset of around a 300-year drought event that occurred approximately 3,200 years ago. This climate shift caused crop failures, death, famine, which precipitated or hastened socioeconomic crises and forced regional human migrations at the end of the late Bronze Age in the Eastern Mediterranean and Southwest Asia. The integration of environmental and archaeological data along the Cypriot and Syrian coasts offers a offers first a comprehensive insight into how and why things may have happened during this chaotic period. The climate shift event underlines the agro-productive sensitivity of 
ancient Mediterranean societies to climate and demystifies the crisis at the late Bronze Age, Iron Age transition. Chapter two, Greek slave societies and revolts. When we think of ancient Greece, we tend to think of Athens and their early democracies or Sparta and their laconic militarism, but rarely do people envision the institution of slavery. The movie 300 portrayed the Greeks as independent lovers of freedom and the Persian demigod Xerxes as a slave-owning megalomaniacal despot who wanted to enslave the free Western world. The truth of this is, of course, that films are intended to lie to you in order to shape your perception and that most of us would be seen as subhuman barbarians by the ancient Greece, especially in democratic Athens. Athens was more of an oligarchy than a democracy at all points of its classical history, but this episode isn't about that. This episode is about Greek slaves and how they didn't put up with Athenian or Spartan bullshit and hypocrisy. Servitude was widespread in Greek antiquity. Athens alone was home to an estimated 60 to 80,000 slaves during the 4th and 5th centuries BC, with each household having an average of three or four enslaved people attached to it. While denied of many of the judicial rights possessed by Athens' free citizens, Athenian slaves enjoyed a few personal liberties. They could follow their own religious customs and they couldn't be struck by their master without just cause. As the property of their master, however, Athenian slaves could still be sold off and family separations were common. Even Aristotle, arguably one of Athens' more progressive thinkers, referred to enslaved people as katema insuption, a phrase that roughly translates as animate property or property that breathes. If they fell on hard times, free Athenians could become slaves through debt bondage. Most enslaved people were foreigners who had been captured during wars and the sons of defeated enemies might also be forced into slavery, sometimes ending up serving the clients of the male brothels. Enslaved people were born into servitude in certain trades such as prostitution. Chattel slaves were those owned by a master who viewed them as his possession, while demosoi were public slaves owned by the state in non-manual roles such as clerks or undertaking more physical work such as road construction. Although were united in being denied civic rights and disqualified from participating in politics. Solon was an Athenian statesman, constitutional lawmaker, and poet. He's remembered particularly for his efforts to legislate against political, economic, and moral decline in archaic Athens. His reforms failed in the short term, yet Solon is credited with having laid the foundations for Athenian democracy. His constitutional reform also succeeded in overturning most laws established by Draco, who was the first recorded legislator of Athens in ancient Greece. Draco replaced the customary system of oral law and blood feuds with his draconian constitution, which was a written code of law that was enforced only by the court of law. Draco was the first democratic legislator requested by the Athenian citizens to be a lawgiver for the city-state, but the citizens did not expect for Draco's laws to be so harsh. And since the 19th century, the adjective draconian refers to unforgiving rules or laws in Greek, English, and other European languages. Among Solon's reforms that didn't last was the abolition of slavery. In his poems, Solon betrays Athens as being under threat from the unrestrained greed and arrogance of its citizens. He even says that Gaia, the mighty mother of the gods, had been enslaved by the avarice of the Athenians and Atticans. 
The visible symbol of this perversion of the natural and social order was a boundary marker called a horos, a wooden or stone pillar that indicated that a farmer was in debt or under contractual obligation to someone else, either a noble patron or a creditor. Up till Solon's time, land was the unalienable property of a family or clan and it could not be sold or mortgaged. This was no disadvantage to a clan with large land holdings since they could always rent out farms in a sharecropping system. A family struggling on a small farm, however, could not use the farm as security for a loan, even if it owned the farm. Instead, the farmer would have to offer himself and his family as security, providing some form of slave labor in lieu of repayment. Equally, a family might volunteer, voluntarily pledge part of its farm income or labor to a powerful clan in return for its protection. Farmers subject to these sorts of arrangements were loosely known as hectomori, indicating that they either paid or kept a sixth of the farm's annual yield. In the event of bankruptcy or failure to honor the contract stipulated by the horoi, farmers and their families could be then sold into slavery. Solon's reforms were later known and celebrated among Athenians as the Sysakteia, or shaking off of burdens. As with all his reforms, there is considerable scholarly debate about their real significance. Many scholars are content to accept the account given by the ancient sources, interpreting it as a cancellation of debts, while others interpret it as the abolition of a type of feudal relationship, and some prefer to explore new possibilities for interpretation. The reforms included annulment of all contracts symbolized by the Horai, prohibition on a debtor's person being used as security for a loan, i.e. debt slavery, and the release of all Athenians who had been enslaved under this system. The removal of the Horai clearly provided immediate economic relief for the most oppressed group in Attica, and it also brought an immediate end to the enslavement of Athenians by their countrymen. Some Athenians who had already been sold into slavery abroad, and some had fled abroad to escape enslavement. Solon proudly records in one of his verses the return of this Athenian diaspora. It has been observed, however, that few of these unfortunates were likely to have been recovered, and it has been observed that the Sysakteia not only removes slavery and accumulated debt, but also may have removed the ordinary farmer's only means of obtaining further credit. The Sysakteia, however, was merely one of, of a set of reforms within a broader agenda of moral reformation. Other reforms included the abolition of extravagant dowries, legislation against abuses within the system of inheritance, specifically with relation to the epicleros, i.e. a female who had no brothers to inherit her, her father's property and who was traditionally required to marry her nearest paternal relative in order to produce an heir to her father's estate, entitlement of any citizen to take legal action on behalf of another, and the disenfranchisement of any citizen who might refuse to take up arms in times of civil strife and war, a measure that was intended to counteract dangerous levels of political apathy. So Solon's reforms were more of a debt relief that freed bondage slaves who were free Athenians, but it did nothing for those enslaved through other means. Those slaves had to fight for their uh, freedom, and they did. In the third century BCE, a galley slave named Dramakos led a slave revolt on the entrepot of Chios, took to the hills and directed a band of runaways and operations against their ex-masters. 
The island came under the dominion of Athens later, but in 412 BC, during the Peloponnesian War, Chios revolted against Athens and the Athenians besieged the island. Relief only came the following year when the Spartans were able to raise the siege. In the 4th century BC, Chios was a member of the Second Athenian League, but revolted against Athens during the Social War of 357 to 355 BC. Chios became independent again until the rise of Macedonia. Also during the Peloponnesian War, miners from Athens' outskirts took advantage of the political and social upheaval, and many of the more than 20,000 slaves who managed to escape Athens were miners. Slavery was even harsher in ancient Sparta. As in Athens, there were different classifications of slaves, but one kind that was unique to Sparta were the Helots. The Helots were an enslaved group living in the Spartan regions of Laconia and Messenia. Messenia sorry. Helots were collectively owned by the state rather than being the possession of individual masters. The Athenian writer Critias described the situation of slaves in Sparta with these words. The free were more free and the slaves more fully slaves than anywhere else. Helots were viewed as enemies and were forced to wear humiliating clothes to distinguish them from Spartan citizens. Helots outnumbered the citizens by about 20 to 1 and formed the entire basis of the Spartan economy to the extent that they were essential to food production. But Spartans treated Helots like animals and would not allow them to leave the place they served. Helots were publicly beaten ceremoniously to remind them of their servile position and taking a Helots life was not a punishable act. According to Plutarch, Spartans even forced their slaves to get drunk to show the young Spartans the issue with drinking to excess. And worse, young Spartan men were told to run throughout the country armed with daggers and kill helots at will in order to terrorize them and keep them servile. In times of war, which was all the time in ancient Sparta, helots were the servants of the warriors, cleaning their armor and cooking and even serving as light infantrymen occasionally. To keep their numbers up, Spartans encouraged helots to breed amongst themselves. Much like Spartan citizens, helots were subjects of selective breeding. The strong lived and the weak would be thrown out or even put to death on the spot. Spartans would procreate with helot women to bulk up the numbers of the state servants. Those resulting children would be called nothoi, ranking somewhere between a slave and a free man. Male Nathoi usually served in the citizen army or worked in some low-level public service jobs, but women who were born from a Spartan and Helot would simply be discarded. And their favorite way to do it was to just take the baby to like a cliffside or to the edge of the woods and just leave them there. Exposure. In the 5th century BC, Herodotus wrote of the Helot population being seven times that of the Spartans. Outnumbered to such an extent, the Spartans believed that for their own self-preservation, the Helots needed to be dealt with as harshly as possible to keep them under control and to quell the mere sniff of rebellion. Plutarch wrote that the Spartans treated them harshly and cruelly, while Thucydides observed that most Spartan institutions have always been designed with a view to security against the Helots. Also, as Myron of Priene noted, the Helots were subject to a stipulated number of beatings every year, so they never forgot that they were slaves. Every autumn, the Spartans declared war on the Helots, meaning that a proportion of them could be slaughtered without any censure from religious institutions. This wasn't to say that Helot rebellions didn't occur. After all, Aristotle called them an enemy constantly sitting in wait, but the Spartan preoccupation with security largely prevailed thanks to the ways of the Cryptea, their secret police. 
In 464 BC, though, an earthquake occurred along the Sparta Fault, destroying much of what was Sparta and many other city-states in ancient Greece. Historical sources suggest that the death toll may have been as high as 20,000, although modern scholars suggest that this might be an exaggeration. The earthquake gave Spartan Helots an opportunity to revolt against their rulers, and the Athenians were then called in to aid the Spartans. The overproud Spartans immediately dismissed the Athenian warriors who showed up to quell the rebellion, and this act is said to be the first and key event leading to the First Peloponnesian War. Thucydides, in his history of the Peloponnesian War, claimed that the Spartans were concerned that the Athenians would switch sides and assist the Helots. From the Spartan perspective, the Athenians had an enterprising and revolutionary character, and by this fact alone, they posed a threat to the oligarchic regime of Sparta. The Athenians were insulted at their assistance being rebuffed and therefore repudiated their alliance with Sparta. Once the uprising was put down, some of the surviving Helot rebels fled to Athens and the Athenians settled them at Napactus on the strategically important Corinthian Gulf, which the Spartans saw as an insult and a threat. The alliance between Sparta and Athens was never revived and disagreements continued to intensify until the outbreak of war in 460 BC. Since the Helot population had used the earthquake as their opportunity to rebel, the Spartans were forced to wait uh, to reform their society until after they had suppressed the Helots, further weakening Sparta both militarily and economically. Chapter 3, Slavery and Resistance in Ancient Rome. It is well known that the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire were slaveholding societies, but most historians, especially those of the 17th to 19th centuries AD, came from aristocratic or upper middle class backgrounds, That reflected on Rome's slavery benignly, despite the fact that the enslaved in Rome felt so differently about their condition that there were three major slave wars called the Servile Wars, as well as several rebellions by indigenous peoples when the Romans conquered their lands. And the reason why they do this is because they want to lure you into a false sense of security because they want that back. The Servile Wars were a series of three slave revolts in the late Roman Republic, The first two Servile Wars were fought in Italy. The first Servile War started in 135 BC when Eunice, a slave from Syria who claimed to be a prophet, captured the city of Enna in the middle of the island with 400 fellow slaves. Soon after, Cleon, a Sicilian slave, stormed the city of Agrigentum on the southern coast, slaughtered the population, and then joined Eunice's army and became his military commander. Eunice then proclaimed himself king with the regnal name of Antiochus after the Seleucid Empire uh, emperors of his native Syria. Now it's time for me to rant real quick because I noticed something. As I was researching this episode, I realized that yet again, George R.R. Martin has simply plucked a figure and an event from history and then just inserted it into the plots of the Song of Ice and Fire series. In the series... When Daenerys sacks the cities of Slaver's Bay and frees all the slaves, a former slave named Cleon takes over and becomes known as Cleon the Butcher because he does to the former masters what they used to do to the slaves as punishment, like cutting off their hands for stealing food or cutting off their feet for running away. And I feel like if all you're going to do is just take names and events from history and then insert them into your plot, you really could have finished the series by now. Anyway, the former slaves then moved to the eastern coast and took control of Katana and Taromenium. Their exploits triggered several minor revolts on mainland Italy 
and went as far as Delos, the island of Delos in the Aegean Sea. Eunice and Cleon were able to repel several Roman attempts to quell this rebellion until an army commanded by Consul P. Rupilius arrived in Sicily in 134 BC and besieged the cities controlled by the slaves. The revolt ended in 132 BC with the fall of Inna and Tarominium and the restoration of Roman order. The Second Servile War was an unsuccessful slave uprising against the Roman Republic on the island of Sicily as well. The war lasted from 104 BC until 100 BC, and it occurred when the consul and mentor of Julius Caesar, Gaius Marius, was recruiting soldiers for the war against the Cimbri and Teutones in the north. He requested support from King Nicomedes III of Bithynia near the Roman province of Asia Minor, and he was refused on the grounds that every able-bodied man in Bithynia had been enslaved by Roman tax gatherers for being unable to pay their taxes. The Senate replied by issuing orders that no slaves were to be taken from among the allies of Rome and that all such slaves should be immediately freed. The Cimbrian War was, I believe, the second time that the tall, blonde, alien-looking Celts and people from the north came down, sacked Rome, and had all the Romans running scared. So the Senate and the consuls were willing to do just about anything at that point. The proprietor Publius Licinius Nerva, in obedience to the edict, at once freed around 800 slaves in his province of Sicily. Aside from awakening discontent among slaves from other nationalities who were not freed, This had the effect of alienating the rich Sicilian plantation owners who saw their human chattel unceremoniously being taken out of their hands. Alarmed, Nerva revoked the sentence of manumission, which provoked the slave population into revolt. Marius was so forward-thinking because he saw how Rome would collapse under the weight of its own contradictions hundreds of years before it actually happened. He was arguing that slavery should just be abolished in Rome because it led to too much land being cultivated by slaves who didn't pay taxes and being owned by equestrians and patricians who refused to pay taxes, which would lead to high unemployment amongst the freedmen and social discontent, as well as repeated economic crises, which is exactly what happened. The Third Servile War, also called the War of Spartacus by Plutarch, was the last in the series of the major slave rebellions. This third rebellion was the only one that directly threatened the Roman heartland of Italy. It was particularly alarming to Romans because the military seemed powerless to suppress it. The revolt began in 73 BC with the escape of around 70 gladiators from a gladiator school in Capua. They easily defeated the small Roman force said to recapture them. Within two years, they had been joined by some 120,000 men, women, and children. The able-bodied adults of this large group were a surprisingly effective armed force. Well, duh, you train them to fight to the death. That repeatedly showed that they could withstand or defeat the Roman military from the local Campanian patrols to the Roman militia and even trained Roman legions under consular command. This army of slaves roamed across Italy, raiding estates and towns with relative impunity, sometimes dividing into separate but connected bands with several leaders, including the famous former gladiator Spartacus. The Roman Senate grew increasingly alarmed at the slave army's depredations and continued military successes. Eventually, Rome fielded an army of eight legions under the harsh but effective leadership of Marcus Licinius Crassus that destroyed the army of slaves in 71 BC. This happened after a long, bitter fighting retreat 
Before the legions of Crassus and after the rebels realized that the legions of Pompey and Marcus Terentius Varro Lucullus were moving in to entrap them. The armies of Spartacus launched their full strength against Crassus's legions and were utterly defeated. Of the survivors, some 6,000 were crucified along the Appian Way. Plutarch's account of the revolt suggests that the slaves simply wished to escape to freedom and leave Roman territory by the way of Cisalpine Gaul. Appian and Florus describe the revolt as a civil war in which the slaves intended to capture the city of Rome. The Third Servile War had significant and far-reaching effects on Rome's broader history. Pompey and Crassus exploited their successes to further their political careers using their public acclaim and the implied threat of their legions to sway the consular elections of 70 BC in their favor. Their actions as consuls greatly furthered the subversion of Roman political institutions and contributed to the transformation of the Roman Republic into the Roman Empire. Outside of the Italian peninsula, wherever the Romans conquered, they enslaved people on their own land. In Britain, the most famous revolt, of course, is Boudicca's revolt, which was more of a personal grievance that turned into a full-scale, woman-scorned-style revolt. But before and after Boudicca's revolt, enslaved Britons rebelled against Roman authority. Captives in southwest England were typically sent to the tin and silver mines of the Mendip Hills, where a Roman fort eventually became the city of Somerset. Documents from the Roman legions show that few legionnaires and soldiers wanted to be posted in Somerset because of how frequently the slaves rebelled there. Chapter 4, Slavery and Serfdom in Classical Asian Societies Slavery in Asia has taken on all the same forms as in Europe and the Near East, with one major difference being that in China in particular, slavery was abolished at different points in its classical history by the emperors rather than because of repeated rebellions, but I still thought the back and forth nature of Chinese slavery was worth mentioning. The Shang Dynasty, which was China's first directly attested dynasty, was a Chinese royal dynasty founded by the Tang of Shang that ruled in the Yellow River Valley in the second millennium BC, traditionally succeeding the Xia Dynasty and followed by the Western Zhu or Zhao. The Shang Dynasty engaged in frequent frequent raids of surrounding states, obtaining captives who would be killed in ritual sacrifices. Scholars disagree as to whether these victims were also used as a source of slave labor. The Warring States period of 475 to 221 BC saw a decline in slavery from previous centuries, although it was still widespread during the period. Since the introduction of private land ownership of land in the uh, state of Lu in 594 BC, which brought a system of taxation on private land and the emergence of a system of landlords and peasants, the system of slavery began to decline over the following centuries as other states followed suit. The Qin Dynasty, which ruled from 221 to 206 BC, confiscated property and enslaved families as punishment. Large numbers of slaves were used by the Qin government to construct large-scale infrastructure projects, including road building, canal construction, and land reclamation. Slave labor was quite extensive during this period. Beginning with the Han Dynasty, which lasted from 206 to 220 AD, 206 BC to 220 AD, one of Emperor Gao's first acts was to manumit agricultural workers enslaved during the Warring States period, although domestic servants retained their enslaved status. The Han Dynasty promulgated laws to limit possession of slaves. Each king or duke was allowed a maximum of 200 slaves. An imperial princess was allowed a maximum of 100. Other officials were limited to 30 slaves each. 
Men punished with castration during the Han Dynasty were also used as slave labor. Deriving from early, earlier legalist laws, the Han Dynasty set in place rules penalizing criminals during doing three years of hard labor or sentenced to castration by having their family seized and kept as property by the government. In the year 9 AD, the Xin Dynasty Emperor Wang Meng usurped the Chinese throne and to deprive landowning families of their power, instituted a series of sweeping reforms, including the abolition of slavery and radical land reform. After he was assassinated in 23 AD, uh, slavery was reinstated. Further east to Japan, slavery is not recorded, but serfdom was widespread. A shoin was a field or manor in Japan. The word shoin from about the 8th to the late 15th century described any of the private, tax-free, and often autonomous estates or manors whose rise undermined the political and economic power of the emperor and contributed to the growth of powerful local clans. The estates developed from land tracts assigned to officially sanctioned Shinto shrines or Buddhist temples or granted by the emperor as gifts to the imperial family, friends, or officials. As these estates grew, they became independent of the civil administrative system and contributed to the rise of a local military class. With the establishment of the Kamakura Shogunate in 1192, Centrally appointed stewards weakened the power of these local landlords. The Shoin system passed out of existence around the middle of the 15th century when villages became self-governing units, owing loyalty to a feudal daimyo who subdivided the area into fiefs and collected a fixed tax. After the decay of the Ritsuryo system, a feudal system of manners developed. Landowners and name holders commended shares of the re uh, revenue produced called shiki to more powerful leaders often at the court in order to be exempted from taxes and to subvert the Chinese style equal field system, whereby land was redistributed after certain periods of time. In the Kamakura period, a hierarchy of name holder manor stewards called Jito Shu, uh, or Shugo, which were military provincial governors and the shogun in Kamakura had evolved. These shown were completely free from interference by the government, which therefore had no say or control of what occurred within the shown's boundaries. By the end of the Han period, virtually all Japanese land had become shown and continued to be throughout the Onin War until the Sengoku period. Slavery was practiced in other parts of Asia as well. The pre-Spanish Filipinos had a caste system with the lowest caste being the Alipin, a caste which also included commoners who performed menial labor. However, the characterization of Alipin as slaves is not entirely accurate, and modern scholars in Philippine history prefer to use more accurate terms like serfs or bondsmen instead. It's more difficult in general to find evidence of slave revolts in the classical era unless they were really large, nationalist in nature, or were successful, which sadly few of them were. But I do hope that this episode sheds some light on the supposed values of the past and how the opinions of the enslaved are often overlooked when examining the past. Next episode, I will be discussing peasant and slave rebellions in the medieval period. Join me next time for more Musings on History. <laughs>